This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Welcome to Plato's Cave, a RRR film criticism show and podcast. And welcome to my co-hosts, recently returned from Russia, it's comrade Cerise Howard. <laughs> Cerise Dabrubajalovic. How did I go? I don't know. What did uh, you just? What do you think you just said? Some words, some letters, mm. some Russian sounding yeah, letters. Yeah, sounded no, hostile I... and yet friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Russian. <laughs> uh, I believe I said welcome, but someone could call in and correct me if I didn't. And they will. <laughs> Hello, listeners. Hello, comrades. I shouldn't have welcomed that. <laughs> uh, and welcome Emma Westwood. Not seen you in a while. I've been in Melbourne. Not not Russia? No. No. For... Oh, well, I have kind of. I live in East St Kilda, so, yeah. Russia. Yep. The other side <laughs> to me, a north sider. And Sally Christie, how you doing? I'm good. I've been in Melbourne as well. Excellent. Good. <laughs> Very exciting. We've been hanging out. Um, on tonight's show, I am not a witch, not a statement. It's a satirical black comedy of magic and misogyny set in Zambia. Also on tonight's show, I feel pretty. Again, not a statement, but the new Amy Schumer <laughs> comedy star vehicle. <laughs> you look pretty. Thanks. Thanks. I don't feel it. And the unlikely union of Indigenous culture and German Baroque hymns in the Australian documentary, The Song Keepers. Uh, but first... In a remote Zambian village, Shula, an eight-year-old girl, is convicted of being a witch and sent to a witch camp in the desert. There she lives among a group of elderly women who also are deemed witches. Uh, the camp is essentially an enslaved tourist attraction. Witches are put on display for tourists by the local government who also force them into menial farm labour and occasionally they ask them to adjudicate these sort of local excuse me, criminal matters by using their, in inverted commas, powers to single out perpetrators from a lineup. Uh, each woman is restrained at all times by a thick ribbon tied to her back and attached to a giant spool often hung from a tree or a truck from memory. The locals say tethering the women prevents these witches from flying away and killing people. Uh, Shula is told that should she ever cut the ribbon, she'll be cursed and transformed into a goat. Um, an orphan, Shula is given a sense of community and protection by the mostly elderly women at the witch camp. But when government official Mr Banda sees an opportunity for exploitation, he declares Shula to be his little witch and a strange form of celebrity looms. Shula is paraded around local courts and TV stations in traditional garb, dispensing divine justice. Um, this is the feature debut from writer-director Rungano Nyoni, who was born in Zambia and partially raised in Wales. Uh, Nyoni first came to international attention with award-winning shorts Mwansana the Great and Listen in 2014. And I should say, although this film kind of reads like a Grimm's fairy tale, it's very much set in the present day, but has the tone of this sort of absurdist black comedy. It opens with Shula being offered quite a surreal proposition, either live life as a witch or be turned into a goat that will be devoured by the people. Uh, this strange sort of premise reminded me a lot of um, Yorgos Lumthos, Lumthos's 2015 yeah. film The Lobster, mm-hmm. um, where um, single people had to find a mate within 45 days or be transformed into an animal of their choosing. She didn't get to choose the animal, though. She didn't. It was a goat or a witch. Witch or goat. Yeah. Um, but it strikes a similar sort of absurdist tone. Uh, well, for me, it did anyway. How, how did others feel about it? Yeah, I loved this movie. I loved it so much. It completely knocked my socks off. In what way, Sally? Um, just the way that it looked at the exploitation of the underclass and all this stuff, you know, that does go on, not... Um, where where do they have those witch camps? I think in Ghana they still have witch mm-hmm. camps. Yeah. <clears throat> and they mainly consist of elderly women that go there because I think the thing is over there that if you don't own property in Ghana, then 
that has to be owned by a man. So if you're a widowed woman, you're pretty much useless to society and they you know, can call you a witch and they put you in these witch camps where these elderly women are exploited for, you know, working in fields and things like that. So I thought it was very interesting to get that kind of story on the screen. Uh, it was something that I have found really fascinating and knew nothing about. Um, I also loved the music choices in this film. Yeah, it was, it was great, wasn't yeah. it? Yes, yeah, so bombastic. Mm. It yep. was like Vivaldi and Estelle. Yeah, Estelle and Bit of R&B. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, we'll be talking about some other interesting collisions of music later on in the show. Emma, what did you think of it? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same as Sally. I did love it. How boring. I, I, I'm, I'm <laughs> agreeing with Sally. But, um, yeah, I think that talking about it as being absurdist it's not absurdist in the style of lanthimos i mean he's like sort of a pure absurdist this is sort of more absurdism through realism (laughs) which is kind of the scariness of it i mean you find yourself laughing but laughing out of horror um in what's actually being presented um which is a a, which is a, a really difficult tone to set and it's the a, fact, it's a sort yeah. of knife's edge because it's you're laughing at the exploitation of a child exactly. essentially so exactly. to strike that balance I, I found it remarkable that she pulls she, she pulls is, it off in and the debut film I mean mm. it's really as a writer director as well it's quite remarkable and the whole uh, premise of witchcraft I mean you know that's not definitely not unheard of in, in storytelling and, uh, you know, witchcraft being the oppression of women. But we usually see it through a European lens and an historical lens as well, European and sometimes American. American yeah. yeah. But um, this being African and being very contemporary, mm. which I think that, um, you know, they played the, the use of music, not... Not over the top, but just bringing in the Estelle and things like that really helped to, to cement it because we can have a, I think watching it as a Western audience, we can have a little bit of a um, maybe a a time disconnect because it's hard to say when this hap- when this is happening, you know? It feels otherworldly, but there are things in it, like the mention of Sim Kardashian and... Um, yeah, um, yes, that's great. Rihanna the, and, and... Trying on the, the wigs, that wig scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. You look like Rihanna. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and, and even the TV show, I mean, although the TV show was strangely low rent. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling, I don't know whether um, anyone looked this up, but I have a feeling that's an actual TV show. Is it? I have no idea. I don't know, because I think... I think there was something in the credits that talked about smooth talk right. the TV <laughs> yeah, show. There was. There yeah, was. yeah, yeah, which was very interesting. But um, this had um, a lot that I think while being presented as uniquely African, I'm guessing, not having been to Africa myself and not being African, but a lot of stuff that um, a Western audience can relate to, like even in terms of the oppression of women, those cot- like big spool cotton reels that the witches were tethered to, when they had them on the, the trucks and so forth, it kind of evoked imagery, I thought, of um, domestic oppression for women, the idea of mm-hmm. being tethered to a sewing machine or something mm-hmm. like that. And that was really strong. That imagery was yeah. really strong. I agree. It reminded me of the imagery in Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale, which is now a TV series that lots of people would be familiar with. But yeah. the red hoods that they all sort of wear, it has a very similar symbolic sort of presence in that film as in that TV show. Um, yeah, so I do. I felt like it, it spoke to Western audiences in a, in a very clear way. Like it wasn't, it was very accessible. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think deliberately so because I think a Western audience is almost presumed for this film. Yep. It's very mm. much a festival film. It's got a lot of European funding. I mean, yes, the director is Zambian-born, but also uh, brought up in Wales, and there's Welsh funding there. There's British lottery funding, as there usually is with British films. I love that, actually, if gambling's going to support anything I productive. Know. Why don't we <laughs> do that? Yes, Why I don't know, we right? do that? Uh, but then there was also... It supports football here, doesn't it? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> does, yeah. And that, but there's funding um, attached to this film also from key film festivals. So there's the, the Hubert Wells Fund, which is associated with the Rotterdam Film Festival, and the Berlinale's logo, logo was prominent as the credits rolled with all those logos upon logos. And I think it's impossible to watch this as a white viewer without having a sense, especially from that opening shot, that we are a presumed white audience where mm. tourists mm. come off a bus to look at the witches, are invited to look at these African women who are uh, we don't quite grasp the, exactly how they're enslaved at that point. We don't quite grasp the full surrealness of but it. But it's that, disconcerting. But it's extremely disconcerting. <laughs> we are definitely asked to have to to be aware that we are looking in that way, and I think it's really vital to acknowledge that because I think it's a, a key, a very deliberate strategy of the film. Um, because I think anybody making a film set in Africa these days, if they're not of Africa, and there you know there is an African film scene there is a, a culture but generally if, if they're if it's european funded there's always going to be some post-colonial aspect to it that we have to ourselves grapple with because these films then travel a circuit largely attended by the likes of us which is to say pretty middle class white people <laughs> and uh, speak for yourself sorry <laughs> well I, i'm more olive beige to be really I'm, particular we're all shades I'd of like brown to think in I'm yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I agree with you, Cerise, and I, I wanted to pick up on that point that you made about the tourists getting off the bus and not grasping the oppression that they're witnessing, but just seeing it as culture. Oh. And, and I felt like um, the film did a really good job at trying to dispel, dispel the noble savage myth. Yeah, um, yeah. And I, I found that really affecting, mm-hmm. yeah. What so a, did I. Yeah. That's There was one, there was this kind of kindly woman and you sort of thought, oh, she's really kind and she cares about her. But then in the end it was just to say, oh, don't be sad and smile and get your photo taken okay. with me. Yeah, you know, and yeah. I'll send it to you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was what? really bizarre. And yeah. even the, the, the just this disappointment of this child. And, and she does speak through the film, but in general um, she doesn't say that much and she chooses not to. She definitely doesn't say whether she is a witch or not, although the, the actual title of the film is pretty pretty much saying what, her, what she is mm. or is not. Mm. Um, but even when she, you know, there's there's a character that's, really very interesting, which is Banda's wife, um, who she does, who um, Shula does get to meet. But when we're even introduced to this wife character who sort of seems like she's empowered in some way, I think that the director makes sure that we realise she isn't because she's bathing her husband she's actually cleaning him and she's he's in the bath like this big baby and she's even calling him baby as, yeah. as she's speaking to him and and we and learned that she, him. she was once a witch herself but yeah. she says oh once a witch always a witch when she ventures out without her husband is when she's kind of you know 
subjected to ridicule for exactly. being a witch. Exactly. Yeah. She doesn't have that male around her. And, and she, she her her just well, her way of coping or her way of empowering Shula and saying what you can you can find power in this was really disempowering in in itself. Absolutely. Mm, you know, but and it was quite. It was quite depressing. Mm, it goes back to, I guess, that kind of stuff because I know that the director did spend time in Ghana where it's like if you're not married to a man, then you have no worth because you can't have property and et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think she was really stressing the point that she was married, she was respectable and... Yeah, mm. yeah, And yeah. she said if you just keep doing what you're told, yep. you could one day could be like me. Yeah, you could be married. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, the film is... Did anyone else have anything else to add? Or oh, keep probably. Us, yeah. <laughs> <There's so laughs> Always. Much, there is so much to talk there about. Is, there film, actually right? is. Yeah, and it's... Yeah. A, yeah it, was a, it was actually a delight to watch and I, ex- I honestly expected to, to get bored at some point point but um i didn't it was a it's it's a wonderful absurdist journey that um i encourage listeners to go on beautiful cinemascope actually it was david david gallego i think is the the dop's name it was absolutely um breathtaking you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia I Feel Pretty is the latest Amy Schumer star vehicle. A woman whose name escapes me. Trust me, it's not Renee. important. Renee. Renee. Uh, <laughs> she, has it, she, has it on a, she has it on a little necklace a la Carrie Bradshaw style. Oh, yes, very yes. well spotted. Mm. Um, yes, Renee, played by Schumer, struggles with feelings of deep insecurity and low self-esteem, mostly revolving around the way she looks. She believes herself to be hideously ugly until, like in, a good rom- like in any good rom-com, I should say, she awakes from a brutal fall in an exercise class, no less, and suddenly believes the person staring back at her in the mirror is the beautiful super model she'd always hoped to be. With her newfound external beauty, she is empowered to live her life with confidence, much to the bewilderment of those around her who see no change in her external appearance, appearance at all. Um, unlike 2015's Trainwreck, which was written by Amy Schumer, I Feel Pretty was co-written and directed by Abby Cohn and Mark Silverstein. Alongside Schumer, it also stars Michelle Williams as the beautiful and meek head of a beauty company that Schumer longs to work for, Lauren Hutton as Williams' grandmother and Naomi Campbell rounds out the pretty faces. Her best friends are played by A.D. Bryant and Busy Phillips. Um, where to start with this? Um, <laughs> where to attempt? start? Yeah. I mean, I was hoping that I'd actually laugh a bit more than oh I did. Oh, my God. I don't think I laughed once. I think that I think this... the. This film could have been really clever. Yeah. It could have actually tackled some really interesting stuff around body dysmorphia. I'm like, look, I'm sounding like I'm getting really highbrow here with it, but it could have. It could have done that. I find American um, transformation um, movies really quite distressing <laughs> because their idea of what's not pretty is often not what I would call unpretty. So, for example, someone like Janine Garofalo in Must Love Dogs, who's short and has dark hair and she's meant to be ugly, and Janine Garofalo is very much not an unattractive person. So the same with Amy Schumer. Well, apparently blonde-haired, blue-eyed white women are not attractive in America. Well, but, but you know, she has a little bit of weight on, so that's where ah. she's apparently un, unattractive. Mm. And because she looked like, um, to me, like a Heather, you know, from the movie Heather. Mm. She looked like the popular girl who would possibly 
be the bully at school in another film. So uh, they had to kind of up the ante by putting totally unrealistic um, supermodels in there (laughs) in Mm. order to bring her down in attractiveness. It was like they just said, we're going to take a little bit of makeup off you, Amy, and now you're going to be really ugly. Mm. Like, um, I'll put you in some tight-fitting clothing. Yeah. But she looked good in the tight-fitting yeah, clothing. That's what I thought. At the beginning when she was walking around, she had, you know, short skirt on. She looked completely fine. Well, <laughs> she, she looked better than fine. I mean, look, you know, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, isn't yeah. it? Is that what the film's saying? I don't know what the film's saying. It's, well, very blat- blatantly <laughs> boring message that... Um, We've heard millions of times, but it is very basic. This film just needed to make us laugh. And even in comparison to Trainwreck, which I don't think is the best rom-com that's ever been made, it wasn't a funny film. And it didn't have the supporting characters that would create the laughs or the lines. There weren't the lines there. I think Amy Schumer has the ability to be incredibly funny. Um, Michelle Williams was definitely excellent in it, but she had nothing to work with. No, she didn't give her any. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, very little. But she had nothing to work with, and they actually even they even put um, references to Big in this film, which was very very dangerous because Big is an excellent transformation film. We're talking about the Tom Hanks film of the late eighties, exactly by Penny Marshall, Mm. and this this film just paled in in comparison. I think there was a good film that could have been made. The idea of a body swap film where you don't actually swap bodies (laughs) is is conceptually at least interesting. It just is. It's somehow really maladroit. This film. It's the the message is obvious from the get go, and um, so yeah, you're hoping for some laughs to carry you through it. And uh, there's just no, there's no comic timing to this film. Mm-hmm. Even if there were some good lines, there's, it's just quite woodenly directed. So there's no, it just it never hits a beat. It never somehow just gels in any sort of comedic way. There are some pratfalls. There's one good scene where she winds up um, in a, a bikini contest, and there's actually a bit of physical comedy there that sort of works. But the rest of the time, you know, she falls over a lot. There's some pratfalls. Most of it's just extraordinarily unfunny. Somehow, I'm not quite sure what, where the magic's missing, but I suspect it's largely in the timing. Mm. It just doesn't work. The camera's not keyed somehow to be in the right place at the right time and the editing's not cutting away at the right moment. It's just that it's lacking that magic uh, chemistry, that that somehow that uh, that little bit of um, something that's almost difficult to pinpoint. You just know when it's not working, it's just not Mm. funny. Mm. 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 We know uh, she's not established either, this character. She's just uh, a blank vessel. I know nothing about her except that she's got two friends, she works in a shitty job, she wants to have a better job. I don't know what her likes are, what her dislikes are. I mean, they focus so much on her weight I don't even know what her favourite snack is. Like, I don't care. So I don't, I'm not invested in the character t- to begin with. She's just sort of a vessel for their lame message of body positivity. Well, it's interesting, isn't it, when you, th- you think about that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> something like Bridesmaids even, you know, if, it imbues her with so much more, just subtly imbues her with so much more as a character. P- personality, yeah, his- history, yeah. context. There's none of that with Schumer. She's just a vessel for their, their their sort of gimmick, I suppose. It reminded me a lot of Shallow Hell, actually, which was, yeah, I think, basically it's a Shallow Bar- Hell. Yeah, it is. It's a reverse I haven't even Sh- seen Shallow, Shallow Hell. Was it funny? Farrelly Brothers, right? Yeah. 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 Where yeah. did they go? Well, well, it's basically <laughs> Jack Black um, sees a morbidly obese woman as very slim and beautiful as because... 
Gwyneth. Uh, which is Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. Paltrow. Mm. Caesar is Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. That's a mixed blessing, isn't it? All over. <laughs> Really. <laughs> but we as the audience also see what he sees. So I think the comedy kind of worked better in that film. Whereas in this film, you don't see what Amy's seeing and pre- presumably because they don't want to make her look. Because what would, where would they go with that? Where would the, how would they make her look more beautiful than she already is? Like I, and, and by doing that, you'd sort of be undercutting the, the, the positive message, do you mm. think? I think like message movies always give me the shits mm. and this one was no <laughs> exception. <laughs> Sally got diarrhea, Jamie. I did. <laughs> I had to leave. That was actually a joke within the film. <laughs> now my mum and dad yeah, are going yeah. to think I've got diarrhea. <laughs> Stop saying diarrhea on air, people. God, it's like the Amy Schumer film. See, even the laboratory humour in the film wasn't funny. It, it just, wasn't. Yeah. They were just bad poo jokes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, I feel like they attempt that sort of... I love a poo joke too. Oh, yeah. Really? I, li- I like it when I love... You know the female grotesque, and I think you know someone the like abject. Je- the abject. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. Je- you know comedians like Jennifer Saunders who play in the abject are fantastic, and I feel that this was none of that though. It was just like poo jokes and kind of like gross. There was some one where she sort of hurts her her nether regions, and there's a joke about blood coming I from. Know. It was just like what is this? Yeah, <laughs> I just I think this up. movie failed on lots and lots of levels. Mm. I, yeah, it just it did look. It had a nice overall message that you're look fine the way you are and you can succeed and it really felt like those Dove commercials, that big Dove Love Your Body campaign yeah. that happened a few real years ago. Real beauty. It was like real beauty. You're beautiful how you are but buy this and you'll just be that bit more beautiful. It's so um, But the one scene that really failed for me was Cerise, the one that you said that you found was funny was the bikini contest because that kind of threw back everything the message was trying to, uh, not the message, the movie was trying to say was that everyone saw her as fine the whole time except that one scene, she gets up on stage and people are repulsed by by her her tiny (coughs) stomach. But then she she wins them over with sheer... Gusto. I mean, I don't actually think it was funny, but at least had some energy. Yeah. The rest of the film was so lacklustre, yeah, so yeah, void of have, any spark. And then she mm. sort of came to life as a character mm. in that moment. But, yeah, the film's rubbish. But I mean, yeah, why, just, are we, why, why are we still talking yeah, about I know. it? I, know, I think it's interesting to talk about that. And I think, Sally, you picked up on a really good point because it's actually more than that scene. So much of this film is about body shaming, which mm. I was like, it's supposed to be a film about self-love it's and self-determination. It's meant to be the opposite. It's meant to be the opposite. And yeah. the people that presumably they're talking to, which is the everyday woman, are being sort of demeaned by it because in every scene, so she sees herself as beautiful, but the rest of the world can continue to see her as grotesque. So she goes, you know, Know, babies are scared by her. She goes yes. to the, she goes to the gym, and the, the trainer's like, "Oh my god, I can't believe you're here." You know, you're hideous. Or when she gets the job in the modelling sort of agency place, everyone's just shocked because she's so ugly. And so the, the, the and I'm just like, yeah. I know it's, it's actually quite. Um, it's quite distressing. For I remember seeing a, a comedian who will go unnamed, who actually made jokes all the time about how. Um, fat and ugly she was, obviously thinking that um, she was fat and ugly and it became really, really uncomfortable because she wasn't ugly. Mm, mm. She wasn't even overweight, right? Mm. She wa- she wasn't an unattractive person. So it just became this really, really sad routine of watching someone who has Body dysmorphia. Yeah, yeah. They absolutely. literally have body dysmorphia. They have a, a they ha, they have a mental illness that they, you know, that they, they need help. And actually, with. that, that was, really that was really kind of brought up as a punchline towards the end of the film that 
if, if you recall, the mental health side of this. It was just yes, a throwaway yes, glib yes, line. Yeah. And that, that it was. was. Yeah. And then it made fun of it on top yes, of that. Yes, exactly. Like, so it was all grappled yeah. with very superficially and rather um, it, uh, awkwardly, to say the least. The strange thing, though, is um, Amy Schumer, obviously, this is sort of part of her agenda in her comedy a lot. I don't know whether anyone ever saw um, the Inside Amy Schumer show, which was an excellent show. A little bit. Yeah. And she she did um, a, there was a sketch called um, in, uh, 12 Angry Men Inside Amy Schumer, <laughs> which was riffing on the, you know, the play <coughs> and the, the movie, um, 12 Angry Men, where she did not appear in the sketch, but they had 12 actors. One was Jeff Goldblum. John Hawkes played the the dissenting one, and um, it's a bit like a Herman's Head kind of. Vibe. It was really interesting. Well, they were all arguing over that they were the jurors, yeah. as the the setup is, arguing whether Amy Schumer was hot enough to be on TV. Mm. So they played out this, but that was a much smarter way of playing well, th- with that yeah. concept and, and that and idea of hotness and whether a woman is okay to be on TV, whether she is agreeable to the eye. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, I lost my train of thought on that one, but it did. there were some other things I wanted to call out on this film and that was the, like, insane product placement. There was so much of it. It was so <laughs> offensive, the Soul Cycle, Target, um, Zumba. Zumba. Just, <laughs> I didn't realise Soul Cycle was a real thing. Yeah. It's a real thing. Ah, I thought that was just an invention for the movie. But so, yeah, because that was, like, massive branding through. Yeah. I don't think okay. it really sold soul, soul Cycle to me anyway. but No, yeah. and there was some like odd, I, I felt like they were trying to do some weird pretty woman thing. Even with the branding of this, it's very much the, the font and everything. It's, it's yes. referring to pretty woman. Good, and good a, point. But um, there's a scene where she goes into a clothing shop and it reminded me of that Julia Roberts scene from Pretty Woman where she goes in and she's denied because she's a hooker and she, she would never afford this lovely, you know, expensive hawkature. Um, but she goes in and a, and a woman comes up to her and says, um, can I help you? And she said, I'm just looking. She says, you're getting a gift for someone. And she said, no, I'm just looking for myself. And she says, oh, well, sizing is a little limited here in the store, but you could probably find your size online. And I'm thinking, why? Because size 12 isn't stocked yeah. in shops. <laughs> like, again, they're sort of like offending their target audience. I it was just that. constant. I came away. There was this like um, where there's a, like a silhouette of her in the nude. I was mm. just like, that's just what I look like yeah. naked. You know? <laughs> and and I certainly didn't leave the cinema feeling empowered, which I think was their intention, but it failed. I don't, I don't think we're throwing forward spoilers to say it. It, it, it. it all rolls towards a moment where there is a public display of... Um, I don't know, <laughs> whatever. Yeah. Um, one of those public you-go-girl moments, um, which was really strangely written because oh I don't even yes. understand what her intention was when I she go up I wrote some of it down. I was so shocked by it. So she has a reveal moment where she, you know, the expected thing where she's, this is the lesson that I learned from this movie and now I will tell it to you. And exactly. she says something to this this effect. She says, as little girls, we all have the con- all the confidence in the world and then these things happen. Someone says something to you in the playground and you take that with, with you until you grow up and you doubt yourself, you doubt your beauty. Um, they fail to acknowledge 
acknowledge that the beauty industry is a big part of the problem. And exactly. the whole thing, and in during this speech, she's making a speech about beauty products that she's exactly. trying to sell to, to, to regular people. The irony. The irony is absolutely astounding. It just sort of blew my mind on so many levels. And to say that little girls' confidences are beaten down in the playground is such bullshit. Like, it's, it comes from so many places. It comes from it's media. so simplistic and it comes from the media and it comes from the beauty industry and so many other places. I was just like, the simplicity of this film astounded yeah, it's me. it's so superficial. It's so superficial, just <laughs> like her. Just like, it was Michelle Williams supposedly channeling Anne Hathaway in Princess Diaries or something, or what was that? I don't that know. she was doing? It reminded me of... It was um, very... <laughs> Just off as well. Yeah, I liked Michelle Williams. I liked it. how she weird she really was, good. though. But there was yeah. just no, there was nowhere for her to go with it. There, there was, was no to depth. work with. Just I, like the whole film, I would have forgiven it everything if it had been funny. Yeah, it yeah. just wasn't funny. No, <laughs> didn't laugh once. Anyway, uh, that's enough said about that. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The song keepers in the churches of remote central Australia, a unique musical legacy of ancient Aboriginal languages, sacred poetry and Baroque music is being preserved by four generations of song women who make up the Central Australian Aboriginal Women's Choir. With the the help of their charismatic conductor, the choir embarks on a historic tour from Central Australia to Germany, a boomerang tour, if you will, to take back the hymns that were given to their great grandparents by German missionaries, but sung in their own Aboriginal languages. We follow the choir as they tour through Germany, performing a repertoire consisting mainly of Lutheran hymns brought to Australia more than a century ago and translated into the Aranta and Pitanjara languages. The documentary film was made by Nina Sen, whose previous films have also focused on culture, music and the arts. What do we make of the Songkeepers, um, Emma? Did it hit the right notes for you? Oh, hit the right notes. Oh, (laughs) yes. It hit the emotional note for me. I got quite teary during this. Mm. Uh, I think it's not what you really expect from a film about missionaries in uh, Central Australia. I mean, my um, knee-jerk reaction to um, missionaries is bad, even though they don't think they're doing bad, but uh, cultural imperialism, all of this sort of thing. But this was quite a surprising story, more about cultural cohesion and synergy really and respect which I thought was beautifully presented uh, and not presented in absolute black or white pardon the pun terms Mm. Um, even in this being a women's choir um, because the the male choir members had largely gone off and uh, became interested in country and western music and so forth Uh, there were a couple of guys who were part of the choir as well, you know, and it, it was really lovely how they were welcomed in and it was just this incredibly heartwarming film. Yeah, I thought this was so beautiful. The one thing that I, I made me cry too, <laughs> it was, it was really, it was very moving. Um the one thing that I thought was just so beautiful about it was the women's interactions with each other and how funny they were and how playful they were and just a real sort of sense of freedom when they were together that, you know, I feel that we it doesn't get portrayed on the big screen that often and just, yeah, seeing them interact with each other was incredible, like just such beautiful friendship, such a really beautiful sense of community coming through, which I thought was really special. Yeah, this is a story I'd certainly hadn't ever uh, heard tell of. Um, 
I too, Emma, reflexively would think, oh, missionaries, colonialism, bad. Uh, and it was actually almost confronting for me to have to acknowledge that in this case, not only had there been a cultural exchange to the enrichment, I think, of the colonial culture, but as well as the Aboriginal cultures, but that in in this case, had, you know, I actually still find this challenging, but there had been um, some good... Uh, told in some backstories of a couple of the the women in the, in the choir, um, telling of some traumatic episodes in their mm. youth, mm. which the missionaries helped them through. And in, in one instance, one life was saved. One of these women, yeah. and and that was actually really quite hard to take on. Um, and I appreciate that this film for going there for not actually just a pandering in a way to my sense of uh, white, middle-class, mm. liberal, low, lowercase l, um, <laughs> guilt and sense of, um, you know, this is the, the actual narrative I want, the one that just spells it out as missionaries, bad, Aboriginal yeah. people, good. Um, it's it's a really more nuanced film than that, though generally it is, most of the notes it strikes are celebratory. Yeah, I think I think it's very easy to, to kind of romanticise this idea of, you know, um, Indigenous culture pre-white, you know. Mm. So this was uh, the particular circumstances you were talking about was um, the missionaries um, uh, taking on an instance that was not a good aspect of the the the, the culture uh, and has actually um, disappeared from the culture now mm. whether that was through the missionary interaction or not I don't know but uh, it's this idea we, you know it's very in- easy to say before bad after before good after bad missionaries bad people it's it's just this film was just about people in all their shades and their good parts their bad parts the the interesting character of the choir master I found was um, when he was first introduced, I thought, oh, this rather interesting urbane gentleman mm. who was not Indigenous. So you were thinking, no, he's not Indigenous. And then they they did present his story, which I think that they presented it so well because they didn't allow his story to overwhelm the rest of the story, but it was something that needed to be told to understand how he fit, fit in. And he was... You know, in some ways you could argue he was kind of like a missionary as well coming into this area. And he's a person of colour, so straddling those different worlds. He acknowledged that, didn't he? I I didn't, I I mean, I wanted this story to be told. I know a little bit about um, the Aronta community um, just actually through reading First Australians and there's a documentary series which I'd I'd encourage anyone to re-watch on SBS On Demand because I think in episode three or four they cover this community quite deeply and actually... I, I had a few problems with this film. I don't. I, I think. I, I think it gave the impression that colonisation saved this community, and I think that's very dangerous. I think, um, in some ways, it did, and it's helped preserved language, which I think is rather ironic, mm. um, and that wasn't really explored at all. Um, but I, I, it's still those German missionaries trampled on a culture. They came in with sugar, with with flour, and they offered them to the indigenous communities um, who thought, oh, this is great, this is free tucker, um, but they didn't realise. What they, what they were actually exchanging and they were encouraged to participate in sermons and forget their own culture to a point where the elders of those communities um, then got very angry with the young children who, who were still going to church and learning these songs and stuff at that time and started to distance themselves from those German missionaries. So it's complicated, you know. It did, it did have a negative impact on those communities that still 
is still going on today. But that mm. said, I, I know Marsha Langton sort of made an interesting point that, that the Arunta, the, the desert people um, of that area are very lucky because so much of their history and culture has been preserved because of the German missionaries and because of the, um, there's two other guys at that time, um, also from you, who, who wrote um, the, the first book about the dreaming and the dream time. <clears throat> and in that book, they um, recorded a lot of their history. Um, and if they didn't have that, that, that would have been lost. So they're, they're kind of lucky in that sense. But I felt that this film really skimmed the surface. I didn't get a good sense of the history, of, of what goes on for these people outside of the choir. You know, what's, what is their home life like? And it was all very positive, but, but it also lacks sort of dramatic climax as well. I found that it really anticlimactic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that uh, there it is was... celebratory. It is only it's for celebra- celebratory, celebratory time. I mean, yeah. I don't want to be disparaging of it because it's an important film, but... Um, no, uh, no, that's really interesting yeah. what you point out because I wouldn't I didn't really have a problem that I wasn't seeing their lives outside of it today. I don't mind a documentary that's a bit pointed, but mm. still if there was more to that backstory, there's was more negativity to that backstory. And I guess in some ways the film was uh well, was showing that there's different sides of everything, then that should have been in there. That's an interesting mm. point that you you pointed out because I'm I I didn't know. I was completely unaware of that. Yeah, so, of course, you know. you know, and just the fact that, you know, these are religious songs that will be performed in Germany um, just prompted a lot of questions for me that aren't quite properly answered, like are the women themselves Lutheran or or Christian or, or do they sing other songs of praise? I don't know. There was just sort of not too much detail given beyond rehearsals and and, and the singing of, of, of the songs in churches in Germany and stuff. But, um, yeah, look, I mean, it, it was interesting just that story of straddling two cultures and stuff. And there was some, like, really poignant things said. Um, one of the women sort of um, said, you know, oh, no, actually I think it was a young boy, said, you know, oh, we're, we're loved... Our music and our song is yeah. appreciated more here than it is at home in Australia, and it's really true. You know, I mm. thought that was there's some really beautiful, poignant moments. But to me, it felt like an episode of Australian Story, which was interesting because then I looked up the filmmaker, and she'd done an Australian <laughs> story, story on Gurumul, and that's exactly what it felt like—a yeah, feature-length yeah. Australian story. It was a sort of like a profile piece, yeah, and a feel-good one, and a feel-good yeah. one. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad it, it, made, yeah. it did. No, yeah. no, it was. I well, was the music surprised. is beautiful. Oh, the music's quite astounding, and just to hear. But the their voices made it really unique. Absolutely. You know, it, a, it wasn't just like, it wasn't like listening to a Western choir, let's say. Oh, no, not even mm. close. Um, well, The Song Keepers is playing at good independent cinemas, as is I Am Not a Witch, and I Feel Pretty is on wide national release. Uh, if you've been, uh, you have been listening, not if you have, <laughs> you have. Don't don't doubt yourself. You've been listening to Plato's Cave. <laughs> Lady Cave. <laughs> Lady, Lady Cave tonight uh, with Cerise Howard, Sally Christie, Emma Westwood and me, Lisa Kovacevic. Uh, the podcast version of the show is edited by the wonderful Faith Everard. Next week's show we'll be discussing Gurumul. Is that right, Sally? I'm not here next week. Oh, you know, me neither. Well, we yeah, end, we, we are. We, we are. are discussing it. Yes, yes we are. Anything else you've got in the pipeline mm, that we need to know? Loveless. And unseen. Okay. Mm, which is not a word. <laughs> no. <laughs> but it is a New York hardcore band. Yeah. <laughs> This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.